Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast. As always, my name is Mark. Here with me today is Matt. Hello. And with some noise in the background, our foreign correspondent now, Orion. Hello, Internet. All the way from across the pond. Across the pond. You're calling it the pond now? That's what they say, Mark. It's, it's a thing? It's a, it's, it's a thing. It's not just in the movies? No. <laughs> And today is episode 35 of the podcast. We don't have any agenda in particular. We're just going to hang out and talk about games and have a podcast about nothing. I'm titling this The Chillcast 2, colon, The Chillcastening. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's the best podcast I, title we've had yet. It's not as good as Mage Knight Rage Knight. That, that was a good one. It does lead to some very disturbing questions about who we are as chill cast chill casters chill casters i guess chill cast is yeah that's good that's good it's close enough to some like to other words to be slightly uncomfortable but it has no connection to anything but chill casting i mean there's there's we're not gonna go there (laughs) anyways we're here to listen to people banging around pots in the background in Scotland and talk about some games. I guess, Orion, you're on a bit of... It's it's very late there, and I apologize. Orion is sacrificing his, his sleep and mental sanity. Yeah, it's almost midnight here. Uh... I, I, I'm going to sound like a very bad person. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> and I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're... We had planned to start this about an hour ago, and you're like, Matt and I are going to play duet first. I'm like, eh. Sorry. Right, fine, whatever. <laughs> well, let's begin with your your game then, because recently you played Brass in England, or are you still in Scotland? Uh, still in Scotland. Okay, close enough. Scotland is on the map of Brass. We're at, like, one end of the of the map. In the UK. Uh, so, yeah, UK. Yeah. So Brass is a um, Euro game based around the start of the Industrial Revolution here in England. Well, here in the UK, specifically England. Yeah. And it's played in two phases, and you've got a series of cities, and you're building these different, like, five or six different types of buildings in them, and then you got to connect them to kind of build a network. So the first time through, you build canals, and then the second time through, you build railroads. Um, and, and you've got to build coal thing. mines and iron mines and and all uh, yeah. So it, it's kind of like Power Grid in the sense that you're setting up a network. It felt a little bit like Mombasa in the t- sense of how different actions were more efficient at different times. Or sorry, not Mombasa. What's the one I'm thinking of? Oh, it's the one that we played with Art about the shipping blocks and building cathedrals and oh, yeah, the, um, the grid of actions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Starts with Kalamala. Kalamala. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Um, it reminded me a little bit of that, and, it, and it's definitely different. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was really, really good. You've got all the all the good, you know, crunchiness. You've got a couple different systems, kind of cycles of things you can do. You can build cloth manufacturers or something like textile manufacturers, basically, and then you got to connect them to ports so that you can sell your cloth. Or you can do the iron the coal iron cycle, so you need coal to build iron mines, and then you can use your iron mines to upgrade your your deck, basically. Um, but one, one of the, the unique things here is that each stack, or each type of buildings, everyone has their own set, and you have to build from the lowest tech level down, uh, or up, I suppose. So you start with level ones, and eventually level twos, and so on. But when you take the develop action, you can actually discard two tiles from the tops of any of your stacks. So you're giving up an action okay. now to build better buildings in the future. Interesting. And the, the one thing I've heard about Brass and the people who like it or dislike it are all about this like mid-game reset where you kind of just wipe the board and start over. How dramatic is that? It's pretty dramatic. Basically, you start out with building level one things, and if you build or develop, you can get to some level twos. And then at the end of the first time through the deck, you wipe all the level ones off the board, or you score them first. 
Well, no, that's sorry. That's not true. You score the the roads, the canals, and then you remove all the canals and all the level one buildings, and so you only keep any level two or you know two and above buildings that you managed to get down. And so I think in the game we played, there were four player game. I bet no one had more than two. So I bet there were like six, maybe six to eight buildings on the map after that. And the whole, the map is cities range from two to four in size. And there's at least a dozen cities. So I bet there's 30-ish spots. And we maintained maybe six of them from the first half of the game. So wow. it's pretty significant. Huh, interesting. So it's it's not like Hunt for the Ring, where it's just a completely, you, you just carry over like some counters, basically. Uh, it's, it's still the same, it's the same grid. So yeah. it's not a new map. So it's, an, it's, it's the same map, and you maintain your money and your like tech level, basically. Yeah. And your victory points and everything. Um, another really cool thing is that all the building you build them on one side and you pay you know so many so much money and everything is in pounds which was fun to me coming from because I was like oh I you know I'm in this new country and there's this new currency of pounds for everything and uh, then I opened up this board this game and I was like hey look I, I know that that currency symbol and I was wondering if it was just you know a UK printing of it or something but he's like no that's actually you know that's actually the game because it's set here interesting uh, well, so the designers cool. designers also British. I believe Martin Wallace. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, anyways, you you build you build the building for you know seven dollars or seven pounds or whatever, and then you have to take another action to activate it and flip it over, and then when you flip it over, you get the income, permanent income, recurring income, and uh, the victory points for it. So, for your like textiles, you have to connect it to a port, and then you take an action to sell all of the you know all the cloth you want. And you get so much money and income for that, and you flip those over, and they become, you know, permanently activated, and you you score them. And then the roads score at the end of each round, the canal slash railroads score a point for every flipped tile in a city they're adjacent to. And at the beginning of every turn, you get money equal to your current uh, income level. And it, it kind of scales up, so you need like three steps for one income later on and, and, and so on. You can also take loans, so you go down in income to go up, you know, to get uh, current money. Yeah, it's just, it's a really good game. Really, how, really solid. How heavy is it compared to some other... It's always kind of been advertised to me as a, one of the heavier Euros out there, but I suspect it's not too bad compared to it's, some others. It's not. What's the like, playtime? We played it in two-ish hours. So I, I bet it's on like the lighter end of the Lacerda kind of continuum. Okay. That's not um, bad at all. Maybe, probably. No, it's like, it's a hair over medium euro, probably. Like there's enough there that you think about it. But I, I, I had a good idea of what I was doing. So Nice, nice. How did you come to play this game while in Scotland? Find a meetup. I found, or... I found a board Edinburgh board games meetup uh, when I was researching things to do in Edinburgh. Oh, sweet. And uh, they happened to have a strategy board game night on Monday, and so we went to the went to this pub, and uh, they had reserved like four big booth tables, and I think there was one or two games of Scythe going on. We played Brass, and then there's another some sort of World War II game that I didn't look closely at. Sweet. So you're having a good time over there. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty sweet here. Edinburgh is really, really a cool city. I like it a lot. Nice. I've heard uh, the, the cuisine in Scotland is basically deep frying everything. <laughs> I've heard jokes about that. Um, I haven't tried like the deep fried Mars bars, which is like the, the. I think it's a meme, but I think it's actually a thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've had fish and chips. I've had some burgers and a few other things. I have not tried haggis. I will have to do that at some point. Although you gotta I'm not, do that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that's going to go, but uh, it's something you got to try. It's similar to uh, to uh, tripe, right? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, you you don't you never had tripe? I don't think so. Oh, no. it's very good. Uh, in pho, at least. There's also the the beer is much cheaper here. Like in Boston, when we go out, it's like eight to thirteen dollars for beer. Here, it's like three to five pounds, which is like four to six dollars. So it's uh, okay. Eight to thirteen dollars yeah. for like 
a Belgian a good beer. beer. A good beer. Yeah, but no, I'm not for a standard like, like IPA or like, is like Light six to eight for like your okay. typical I, IPA. Still, it's like twenty five percent cheaper. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. It's nice. I like it. It sounds like the dream. It, it's it's pretty cool. Cheap yeah. beer, board games. Cheap beer. Board games. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, yeah. You gonna go back on Monday to the meetup again? Probably. Sweet. Well, we will look forward to hearing whatever you play then. I will I will give you an update. All right. What should we talk about next? You've played Duet, right? Oh? Yeah. Um, I got quick, two quick. copies of it, intending to take one myself, and then could not fit in my backpack. So it there are two copies. Well, there's an extra copy at that apartment, and Matt probably has one. Uh, tragedy. Yeah, I actually brought my copy over here tonight because I did not realize that you had left it here. So now we have three copies in the apartment? No, no, no. Ryan's copy and my copy. Oh, okay. So did you find it incredibly difficult? No. I beat, like, the basic difficulty where you have nine guesses and whatever. That one, I think I beat every time. When we stepped it up, we did, like, the city map. We jumped to some of the harder ones, then I struggled on some of those. I'm here to report it is very difficult when you're looking at the the key at a 90-degree angle differently than your partner that that ramps up the difficulty a lot i feel like yeah we we played right before we began podcasting and i blame mark's podcasting setup for making it impossible for us to win which made it really frustrating yeah especially since i knew the answer to one of the clues but i was like it literally can't be that because of that would be another assassin word from my angle i think i don't know i think it's an interesting setup the problem, the problem I see with duet is because they're overlapping words, you, your your plans can get thrown off. So I can see this kind of going on longer than regular code names, where you can really plan for your clue during the other team's turn. In this one, you've got to, you've got to pay attention to more gamey stuff of like counting the overlaps and seeing what clues could possibly be there that you i feel like it it could drag out a bit longer yeah in regular code names if i'm giving clues i can often kind of map out sort of or like group some of my words from the get-go right like maybe i see these two these two and you know maybe there's a group of three that i think i might be able to connect further down the line if you did that here you'd likely get get thrown off by your partner but I think the overlap is really cool, I, especially the assassin stuff. We haven't played it enough to see that be be interesting. But it's interesting that I might be guessing a clue that's an assassin on my board. Right. Yeah, I liked the the little extra bits of information. It does change it, like you were saying, but it, it's a co-op game, not a competitive game. So it gives you a little bit of extra stuff to work with going back and forth, and you can help your partner out sometimes, usually inadvertently, but... I don't know. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, it's code names. It's got good stuff. I just, based on this one play, I don't think I'll be ranking it higher than regular code names because it seems a little bit more, it, it's it's more complicated though. There's more information to work with. So maybe I'll end up liking it more, but. You have, what do you have the code names at? Nine? Eight and a half. Eight and a half? Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of excited. I wouldn't put it higher than code names. It's, it definitely works at two players, which is cool. Oh yeah. Um, In terms of. it does that really well. In terms of accomplishing its goal of transforming code names into a two-player game, it obviously works quite well. But sometimes you could do that kind of thing and then just come out with a better game. And I don't know if that's the case here. It could be. The art's a little more varied. You got more people. Like every card has like an individual person instead of just the two yeah, they, images. They, they put a little more more into the art. They improved that in code names pictures and then they've gone even further and yeah the the people are pretty cool although i still don't know why like the game's designed so that you're sitting across from each other and so one person's inevitably essentially going to get the cards upside down no i don't well no, no mark the idea is that you would place them facing who guessed them no i'm talking about the words oh gotcha so they have one side from one direction it's just harder to read why don't they make it clear on both facing both ways for the words. They should just be reversible cards. Yeah. I don't understand. They should have done that in the original code names. 
like maybe it doesn't look quite as good, but at least like it's easier to read. That's the only information you need from the card is to be able to read the word. And from one direction is simply harder to read the word. I mean, when I'm looking at a codenames card upside down, I just read the white background, black text part upside down. That's where my brain immediately yeah. goes anyway. Get on it, CG. Come on. <laughs> Maybe they're designing. That wasn't very chill of me. No, it wasn't. Come on, CG. Maybe. <laughs> be a, be a Maybe friend. Maybe they're doing all of their graphic design work in like paint or something, and they just can't change it at this point. Yeah, well, I, I would blame them. <laughs> I didn't do my game in paint, Matt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I may or may not have downloaded a month free trial of Microsoft Office so I could use Publisher. And that worked very well because it's much more an intuitive program than all the other ones I tried. No? Orion. Hello. Hey. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, we got you. Okay. Back. The call dropped or something. But... Yeah, you're a bit choppy. You're kind of robotic. We thought they <laughs> might just shut off the internet at midnight in Scotland. Have you been possessed by a robot? I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> if I am a biological robot. <clears throat> it's the third third law? You gotta tell me these things. Third law is that Isn't the third law you have to do what humans say? Oh no, third law is self preservation, I believe. Uh, I thought that was the second Second law is you gotta follow I instructions, I think. Um, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah that's it. Don't yeah. harm humans. Follow orders. Second law: don't obey humans unless it violates the first law. Right. The other thing I'll say about duet briefly um, is that I found the words just a little harder to kind of because um, like regular code can always find almost always find a two clue and often like a I can find it. Orion and, is definitely a robot now. I yeah. to several setups with duet glitching. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah, or am I still a robot? You're, you're definitely a robot. You can't deny it now. Oh, oh. Now, you're, now you're gone completely. He's transcended technology and now is a spirit. I feel like <laughs> I feel like our communication with Orion would be better if he had transcended his earthly body. <laughs> um, but yeah, what, what Orion is saying is that uh, the, the words seem a bit harder, which you mentioned during our game, Matt, that you read that they designed the words to be more difficult. I read that somewhere. Um, I, you know, with very little experience playing the game, I could see it being true. I never. Although, could... how do you figure that out as a designer? Like, I'm looking at the words we have here. One of them is ant. Like, how is ant? Like, how do you determine whether or not ant is it's a harder? It's probably more frequencies of types of words. That might be true. Yeah. You know, there's ant. I don't know. We have ant and walrus. But but you're saying fewer broad category words? Perhaps, yeah. There's always a couple of cities in Codenames. There are a lot of cities in the Codename deck. Yeah, we do, I don't see any here in our setup. I don't know about the rest of the cards. So. And we got a couple animals. We got a couple tricky words. Like, we got potter. That's a tough one. Yeah, that's what I was not sure about. Like, a potter. One who pots. Yeah, you make ceramics right yeah yeah although i went for the harry potter route with my clue which didn't work at all ranch was a tough one because we had you have the uh the dressing and the location i'm basically pointing out all the words that you failed to guess correctly at this point well you didn't get dash for spice well, that's so. because from my perspective yeah, i thought it was literally eliminated from possibility first time but I didn't. You also because I was you going also to guess vampire for Jesus, Mark. They're both they they both have died and then come to life again. Yeah, but although Pew, do you die if there. you become a vampire? They're undead, aren't they? In most. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I guess at some point in the transition, the past you has died. Anyways, you laughed at it, so I thought it was a funny answer. Really, it's your fault that we lost at. Do it. We, we we failed we significantly. Need to, to, to note this now that we have always been awful on a same team in Codenames. So I've been awful on every team I've been on. After a while, it's like I wasn't going to point this back to you, but I mean, can, I think I'm. I think just people when they partner with me, they are intimidated by my intelligence, and that kind of 
the pressure gets to them. That's that's my theory. That's a valid theory. The constant in this equation is my own intelligence and codename skill. <laughs> I couldn't keep a straight face on that one. No, I, I'm I'm quite bad at code names. Actually, I don't think I'm that bad. I think I'm mediocre, but I really enjoy going going big. I, I really enjoyed trying to get yeah. like the four clue or the five. I got a five once. It was yeah. amazing. I really didn't see big clues in our game here, but you know. Yeah, there weren't we'll, any. We'll play some more. I'm looking forward to playing this with, I mean, Codenames Duet. Like it's a couples game in terms of like stuff that you can kind of just chill play with significant other that may not love games in general see i mean it is but it's also really passive aggressive (laughs) like if they guess a wrong clue you just like look at them as you slowly move the the fail token over (laughs) to the card you're not allowed to discuss anything yeah it's forced passive aggressiveness (laughs) maybe you need to work that out as a couple but yeah yeah i mean if i played with amber get heated we'll see did we lose Orion again? I think, I think Orion's gone. In uh, theory. Oh, oh he's still there. Whoa. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, Ryan. I went to Seattle recently. I've kind of been all over the place in America. So I haven't played a whole lot of games recently. But I was in Seattle, Orion's stomping grounds, across the island, as people say, and uh, went to a board game cafe there, which was awesome. Orion, do you know of Mox? Uh, no, I haven't heard of that one. All right. Is that the one you sent a picture of? Yeah, yeah. I was just really impressed. I, I know there are board game ca- cafes here in Boston, but I haven't been to them all. I was just impressed with the heavy game selection at this cafe. They had more GMT games than I've ever seen in any store. It's a sign of high quality. I, that's what I was thinking. And I was the only board gamer of the group that went. So I was showing them all these awesome games. And there's like a history person. And I was like, look, this is the Reformation game. And they were like, oh, that's cool. I'm never going to play that. It looks hard. <laughs> Get me out of here, Matt. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Anyway. Was it in Seattle proper or was it on Bainbridge? No. Oh, it was in Seattle proper. I forget the suburb. That's so fun. Mox, look it up if you're, when you're back home, Ryan. Speaking of GMT, I got a package from them because I ordered some games, not just, you know, at random. <laughs> it was like deliver this to this it was a transactional thing 10 and 11 p.m on date <laughs> and i don't know if i told you but they had a fourth of july sale where all their revolutionary war games were on sale so i got liberty or death the revolutionary war coin game and a tri-pack of three hex encounter battle games set in the revolutionary war sweet it's like saratoga which i know is a famous battle Brandywine, I believe, and I don't remember the third one, but that should be fun. We've reached the point now where I feel like we're like saturated with coin games. We gotta, we gotta get around to playing them more. But yeah, I've heard Liberty, Liberty of Death is a really good one. It was on sale, so there we go. Let's talk about let's talk about the Gallerist. So now we got it here, and I want to convince you to play this game, Matt, because you haven't played any Vital Lacerda games. No. So and we played it right setup. before Orion left. Yeah. And I was here while you set it up and played the first round. That's right. It looked gorgeous. Yeah. Did it interest you? Like Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it looks great. Yeah, the only thing I know about Lu- Lucerda, am I saying that right? Lucerda, yeah. Lucerda games. I believe. Is that they're they're supposed to have like weird systems and it's kind of opaque when you first come to it and then you kind of get a feel for how the systems work. Is that correct? Kind of. The Gallerist, I think, is substantially more simple. Okay. Gallerist is pretty straightforward. You've got... You're an art gallerist, and so the idea is that you're trying to speculate, basically, on art. And so you're buying and selling art, and the ultimate goal is just to get the most money. And so there's... The kind of twist to it is that there are only four action spaces in a worker placement game, and you only have one worker. And so you go to a space and you have an option of doing two different actions at each space. So there are eight actual actions. And then if you're on a space and someone else goes there, you get bumped and you get to do kind of a tertiary action or you can spend some influence and do another full action. That's kind of the basic structure of it. But it's like 
it's simple things like buying some art or discovering an artist and getting a commission for that art, selling that art, getting cards that let you sell a particular type of art, getting more assistance that will help you do things, getting yeah. end game bonuses. That's like the whole thing. So like okay. in terms so, of like so the, I mean, systems and subsystems and the structure of the game, it's pretty straightforward. It's just kind of delivered with a twist. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a economy of, that you might find in most kind of Euro type yeah. things. Yeah. Um, an economy of art. In Venus and Lisboa, you get to more complications in just kind of how actions resolve and the implications for what you're doing. Yeah. But the Galleris is pretty straightforward. So, There's a little bit with like the people who go into your gallery that can be a little bit subtly significant, but mostly you're just trying to buy art cheap and then pump up the price and then sell it. Yeah. Are those eight actions, are they balanced in like magnitude, both like within the pairs and within the four areas like no they're 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 logically so like one there's one section that's buying there's one okay. that's selling there's okay. one that's end game bonuses and the other one the other one's getting assistance or increasing the reputation of it an artist. sounds inevitable that there's going to be lots of bumping oh there's tons yeah i mean that's one of the key core components of the game is figuring out does that if it's worth it to go to a particular spot if you know that someone else is like prime setup to get a free full action off of it? Gotcha. And then if you get in a situation where you can take the spot you want and you're not really giving them much or an opportunity to, opportunity to do much, that feels good. There's a slightly more complicated version of that in Lisboa, where your actions open up the door potentially for other people to follow and get bonus actions. But it's just a hair more complicated really, in Lisboa. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. There were, like, different kinds of art, and, like, there are actual, like, commissioned little mini pieces of art on these cards. Yeah. What, what were the types of art? So, like, is that There's, part of the thing? Like, you have to be, like, licensed in a certain type of art to sell it? Yeah, you get these cards. There are four types. There's photography, like, 3D art, paintings, and Digital art, I believe, are the four categories. Cool. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. There are four different categories. And yeah, you just have to have, you have to basically spend an action to get a particular card to sell of that type. And so there are varying strategies you can go for. I went for a kind of grab and hold and then just sell off everything at the end. Because effectively, you don't have to sell the art during the game to get value for it. Everything is effectively sold at the end. But if you sell art early in the game, it opens up the door to more options in terms of endgame bonuses. So there's some interesting subtleties there where holding on to art is action efficient if you can do it and maintain a money stream to be able to buy more art in the future. But doing a really rapid, quick turnaround on your art buying and selling can give you other advantages. It's a good game. It's a really good yeah. game. No, we'll have to play it. Yeah. I probably have the most interest of that of the Lacerda games. It's the one to start with, I yeah. think. The other ones, I think, might be slightly better because they're a bit more complex. Because in the gallerist, like the only thing you really care about is trying to quickly bump up the price of your art. And doing everything is kind of centered around that. And I don't know. There are more dimensions, I guess. There are more things to do in the other games. Galera seems a little bit straightforward. But it's a really wonderful discovery experience of trying to figure out the game when you first play it. The other game I've been playing recently is Charterstone, which I put out my first impressions for the other day. And it is a very odd little game. I don't, I don't you, know if little is, is the right word. Yeah, it's is a it? little game. Like, it's it's quaint. Quaint? Okay. Yeah. It's an incredibly light game. Huh. Okay. Like, I thought it would be substantially heavier. Did you read my impressions? I did. I actually really enjoyed it. It's like Catan level. A hair more complicated than Catan. Okay. Well, it sounds really interesting as like a case study in legacy games. And I mean, legacy games are just really interesting to think about as we 
kind of come off the genesis of the genre. <laughs> you know, we've had at least a couple legacy games that did it really well. And now it's like, well, will they stick around? What can you actually do with it? This is an interesting case study, it sounds like. Yeah. Orion, did you read my first impression? Yeah. Um, I, it was interesting because I played the very first game. And then uh, from your first impression, I called a couple looked like. And I don't know, it didn't like from what I, you know, what I've, from what I thought and what I then I read that you had uh, that you had put up, it didn't inspire a whole lot of desire to play the game. Yeah, we're we got to the point where I think we're going to finish it, but just barely. And if it was any longer or if we were playing with like five or six people on this campaign, I don't think we would spend the time finishing it. But we're finishing games in under an hour by this point. That first game, though, was was pretty rough, I thought. Do we want to get into spoiler territory here? Let's get into spoilers just so I can talk freely. Honestly, there's not much to spoil. Like, we're a third of the way through this campaign, and I don't feel like much has happened at all. Okay, so warning for the people listening, we're about to hit spoiler territory with Charterstone, at least for the first four missions. You start in Charterstone, and it's, like, really slowly giving you the mechanisms. Everyone, like, it parts out their first building, and it's, like, gather one resource of a thing. And there are these five basic actions in the middle, and they're basically the way that you score points and then you can get buildings and there's a little card tableau to purchase cards from and you can get assistants that do passive things and you can open crates that basically unlock more legacy stuff and the story of charterstone is that you're sent out to charter this town as individuals on this kind of floating island by this guy named the forever king which is the most hilariously nefarious name I've heard in a long time. I think I remember commenting on the first time we read like a story bit. I'm like, well, he doesn't sound trustworthy. What kind of king deems himself the forever king? That's awful. It's foreboding in like like a Nintendo kind of way. Oh, yeah. And the art backs it up. He looks like a Nintendo character. His little you know, face on the cards. And so, so far we've unlocked, we're building more buildings and they're effectively doing more with kind of the resources we have, the six kind of elemental resources, the food and the iron and the wood and all that, and then money. And so we've gotten more effective ways to get those and trade those around. We've gotten a couple quicker slash different ways to get cards. And then the only like main new in it thing we've gotten well, there's two kind of main things. We've gotten two or three different kinds of minions, which are like extra workers that you can use that have some restrictions and some bonuses. So we have these golems are the first one we did, and you can only put them on spaces in your charter. But when you place them or if someone else goes on their spot, you get a free resource. And then the other thing we've unlocked are these items item cards that you can get and then have resources for, and then you can just cash those resources in for points. So it's still all super basic, like really simplistic Euro stuff. Are, are of those things that, gather X resources, turn in these resources for points. Are those things that unlock at a particular game number, like in the third game? No, those are, there's stuff that, is progress game to game is based on what's revealed in these milestone cards, which is like a meta goal for the game that will give you long-term benefits, a very slight long-term benefit, you know, probably at the expense of a bit of efficiency in the game. And then those will have a choice. Each one has a choice once you, once you scratch off the scratcher bit, and then that unlocks stuff at a game by game basis. But everything else is on like a tree but nothing's dictating when you unlock certain things. So you start off with like your first crate and that'll unlock like your first building. And then that building will unlock a different building and then throw these other two buildings into the pile. So maybe you end up not doing that one building. It goes back into the draw pile. Someone else draws another building, they build it and then they do that crate. So it branches out and it's kind of free form. Would be it'll be interesting like at two thirds or all the way through if it is a interesting complex game. 
or yeah so far it's just adding more buildings that yeah. kind of just do and it's to the point where like yeah there's interesting there's enough buildings that do things where you kind of have to plot and plan your course through to try to be yeah. efficient at it it's got a similar end game thing to scythe where you have these influence octagonal cylinders i don't know what that shape is called is octagonal cylinder a thing no it's an, it's an, an octagonal prism okay that you have 12 of those and basically anything that gives you victory points or that is just more efficient at resource gathering will cost a certain number of those and we have unlocked a building that you can spend resources to get them back but that's obviously very slow and once you run out of those Every time on your turn, the time ticker ticks down. And then every anytime someone does one of the main three victory point gaining actions that it ticks down also. So the, building a new building, getting a new crate, and then scoring a victory point objective all give you five points and they'll also tick down that timer. So once the timer hits the bottom, then you just finish out the round. So it's not as abrupt as Scythe. But it's not particularly interesting. Oh, another thing we just unlocked in the last game are, are passive income buildings. So you spend like an influence token to get an, an income of a something. And then that's triggered at certain points on that timer. So it's building up to where it's like, well, yeah, maybe they'll end up at an interesting place. But like it's going way too slow. Like I don't understand, especially in that first game, why they didn't just start with more in the rule book Because... We spent so long just trying to figure out what's going on. And, and, and then in the end, where it's like, well, this is just a dirt simple game presented to us in a much more complicated way than it needed to be. I would have rather just read a rule book. Yeah. And as I said in the in the first impression, I'm getting less chill here as I talk about this. This is not the best chill cast, but it, I think it's a fundamental difference in legacy a different philosophy, whereas the Pandemic games, and I believe Risk Legacy, although I haven't played it, it's like, okay, we start with this this game and then we kind of build up on it and we transform it. And then Gloomhaven just uses Legacy as like flavoring, like just some spice to make some things a little bit more interesting, but otherwise mostly irrelevant. Charterstone yeah. is like Legacy, a Legacy campaign as a giant tutorial. Yeah. And I don't know if that works. It's so much time to learn and get to an interesting game. Whereas any other, you know, a decent game, you just read the rules. The, the problem is that you have to be playing a game worth playing the whole time. Right. And the first game of Charterstone is not a good game at all. It's an awful game. So just take a deep breath. Yeah, I got I to gotta chill here. The fourth game of Charterstone is a decent game. How about that? That's good. That's good. It's a decent game. I've played worse. Too rash. Like the first game of Charterstone is a worse game. If it continues at this rate, the twelfth game. Like... If it continues at a linear rate, it's going to be an okay thing, and something I probably wouldn't recommend. To get to a point where I would be recommending this game, it's got to do something crazy here. I hope it does. It's foreshadowing that the Forever King is the villain. The very little bit of story we've gotten. But I hope it just goes nuts. But honestly, there's like only three little tiny tuck boxes we haven't seen yet in terms of content. Interesting. It's like the, the opposite of Gloomhaven. Where we've been playing yeah. for like weeks of actual playtime. <laughs> Although I should be fair. There's like... 250 cards we haven't seen also so there might be crazy stuff but in terms of like physical components yeah there's yeah. three little tuck boxes yeah. so there are four you you get and we've looked inside one of them it has all the different minion types and then they were sneaky and fit some cardboard pieces underneath the insert that we just unlocked but there's just three little boxes so we'll see where it goes right now i am not recommending charterstone it looks amazing but man that first game was not good and it's crazy because this game's in the top 100 on BoardGameGeek. It's cracked the top 100. I, I don't understand. I think Stonemaier just, like, props to them. They've made some amazing games. But I don't understand how there's so much enthusiasm for Charterstone. Unless, like I said, unless it does something real wild. All right, that's enough ranting, I think, on Charterstone. 
you're going to try to play the next game with us, right? Yeah. Um, yeah Jump it in. Sounded, I, it it should support like that pretty well, honestly. It says it doesn't recommend it, but I think it should be okay having someone pop in. You've played some mass market games, right, Matt? You were talking about some fun little games. Yeah, so while I was in Seattle, just kind of driving around to some national parks and stuff with some friends, we played some games, some word games in the car mostly. The mass market one being Quiddler. Okay, tell me about this game because I googled it when you told me about it. It's a word game? Yeah, so it's it's incredibly simple. The idea is that you have a hand of letters. Cards will either have one or two letters on them. You have to put all of your words together. Sorry, all of your letters together to form words. When you can do that on your turn, you lay down all your cards and everyone else gets one more turn. So so your turn is just... So you start with a hand of cards? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and, and your turn, and like other games... Your turn is just draw a card, either from the discard or from the, the deck. Yeah. And then if you can play cards, you play them. At the end of your turn, you discard a card. Once so, you play a card, do you have to play everything? Yeah. So yeah. it's like gin. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But with words. But with words. And then cards have a point value, so there's some kind of like shuffling of... You don't want to keep a bunch of high-scoring points, high-scoring letters, because they count against you if you can't use them. But you want them because if you can use them, you score lots of points. That's pretty much the entire game. That sounds pretty fun. It is pretty fun. It's very chill. I've played this before in context with like aunts and uncles, you know, family gathering type of events. And it's really cool. Like it's it's way more chill than Scrabble, obviously. But it has kind of some of the same letter. Right. You know, it's like Scrabble Gin Rummy. Scrabble Gin Rummy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's cool. And like there are little things like bonuses for the longest word, bonuses for the most words, if you can pull that off. Yeah, I don't know. There's not a whole lot to say about it other than it's very simple. There's really not that much game. It's all about just kind of like shuffling letters in your head, trying to find interesting words. That's cool. Yeah. And then when I Googled it, I found that it was made by the same company. Oh, yeah. That makes set. Yes. Which I which, think is a highly underrated mass market game. Only because you're good at it. I'm I also, so good at it. I also played set and got exactly one set in the game. That's not good. No, because this is my experience with set. Every time I play it, there's one person who brought the game who is incredibly good at it. That's me. Then there's one other person who's way better than me, but also like half as good as the other person. So the score is always like 15 to 7 to 1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was delighted to see in this book I reviewed, Kobold Guide to Game Design. Mike Selinker has a, a maybe the best article or essay in that book. It's just a list of some of his favorite game mechanisms, and Set was one of them. And I was like, great. I'm so glad to see Set listed among other you know amazing modern games i think it, i think it's a or hobbyist yeah, no, game it's I, a fairly new game. it's a great game yeah um well we it, should explain for those who just... don't know it's super set is comprised of these cards that have three shapes on them and there are are the three different types of shapes yeah. there's three of everything right there, there are th- there are three colors there are three shapes there are three shading patterns yeah and i think that's it yeah, and you have to find, is it sets of three? Sets of three, where each of those categories is either all the same or all different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting if you think of if you think of it as like three-dimensional space, which it is. Like it's just, you could map out all these cards in three-dimensional sh- space. Wait, what? How? You have three axes. Oh, Matt, you're making this way more complicated than it needs to be. You just get in the zone. No, 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 no. I mean, that would not stare help you at the be grid. Set. <laughs> yes, no. It, it's all about just like laser focus and incredible. And just really good pattern recognition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like people I, and who I just are good at to it. be really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> like it's impressive to see people play it and just like you just, how do you see that so fast? It's and cool, it's a real-time like, thing because you're you're all yeah. like huddled around like yeah. trying to point them but out as fast as possible. there are only 12 cards on the table. Like it's, yeah. a, it's incredibly simple. And there's always way more sets possible than you'd think. 
Yeah. Just from first glance, which is I think is really cool. Yeah. It'd be cool. I don't know. This would be a fun one to play if we ever did like a live, like a marathon live stream. I think it'd be a fun one. I think it'd be about as bad as Codenames Live. It would be worse than Codenames Live. It'd be great. It's just... Because people who play along at home. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. Okay. It, when we ever do some kind of marathon live stream, we got to play set and Bananagrams. Fine. So we'll play a, a real-time game I'm good at and a real-time game I'm very bad at. It sounds good. And really, if you think about it, Quiddler is like right at the intersection of those two. No, But not, it's not real-time. It's, it's not really. No. There are very few real-time games I'm good at. Yeah, it's because set is bound by the intense focus. But it's not just intense focus. It's intense focus of a very specific skill, and that's pattern recognition. Yeah. Which I think I've always been pretty good at. When it comes to doing that with letters, though, and words and bananagrams, it's no good at all. Yeah. I mean, I can't spell, and I'm fine at bananagrams. <laughs> the last thing I want to mention is that I got my one of my three initial button-shy Gen Cant design contest submissions finished and uh, prototyped out, and it's not bad. It's a, it's a little family game. It's got a little... It, it looks horrific because I can't do anything visually, you know, graphic design-wise, but they're not looking at that, I think. The contest rules said art should be serviceable, and you should be able to play the game. So that was the that was the threshold they set. Yeah, and I, I the and my game can certainly be played. It can be played. In it fact, looks serviceable. Yeah. You just need to find like better clip art of animals, really. That's really the only upgrade you have to make. Or just make art of animals, yeah. Yeah. And you know, you could put a border on or something. I don't know. Yeah. Make a little background pattern. So you went with the family game? I went with the family game. Because at a certain point in the last couple of days, I ended up procrastinating more on this than I wanted to because that's how I roll. And this was the game I was able to make and be satisfied with. Like I said, I don't think it's the best game ever. I think it's a decently fun game. When I played it a couple times solo, I was thinking about my decisions and how to rotate the cards and such. The other game, which was my initial idea, was a more complicated, much more complicated drafting civilization game and at a certain point i'm like do i want to rush something out that's serviceable and then hope they see the potential in it or do i want to just work on this more on my own time and really try to get it nailed and then formally submit it and i'd rather i think the drafting game idea has enough potential that i'd rather do it really well and i just didn't get enough done to have that and have it in time for the contest so I'm, it's hard to... I'm, I'm excited that I'm submitting something. I mean, yeah. That was my goal. Yeah. I've never actually gotten to a point where I've a publisher is going to be looking at something that I have designed. I've never even come close to that before. But when this game is a bestseller, everyone is going to be looking for the next family game from Mark Davis. This game is not going to you're be gonna, a bestseller. You're going to be pigeoned in the family game featuring zoo animal genre. It's, it's African savanna animals, Matt. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, I guess they appear in zoos also, but it's a natural that overlap. One section of the zoo, yeah. Yeah, the African savanna section. <laughs> Most zoos have that section. Yeah. So, it's. I think it's pretty cool. It looks kind of neat when you're done with it, and all the cards are kind of stacked and splayed out in everything. Is there a meta goal? So, so the idea is that you're covering up animals, and you have to do, you want to do particular combinations or whatnot. Right. Is there a meta goal in the game? I, I made it a point system. I, I haven't play tested it enough to figure out like what a good score is. So if they're like, hey, we want to publish this game, I'd be like, yeah, we should play it more and figure out like a threshold. Hey, if you get 60 points, that is excellent. If you get 50, that's really good. That kind of thing. What I put in there was how to calculate the points and then be like, keep track of it and try to beat your high score kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a co-op game. Basically, it has different types of animals on the cards arranged more or less randomly. I basically, when I was doing it, just tried to put no thought into how they were arranged to simulate randomness. And you're trying to ultimately have the most of the peaceful animals displayed at the end of the game and the fewest number of lions, which are the 
what you're trying to cover up. But each card, when you place it, has to cover up a certain selection of animals that's printed on the back side of that card. So you're covering up things and you're trying to cover up lions as you go, but then the final two cards are just some grass images I put on there. And they're designed to be like, okay, maximize your score, cover up all the lions if possible. The hard mode of the game is to have no lions showing at the end. That's the real victory, but that'd be very difficult. So I don't know. I think it's the kind of thing I'm like, yeah, I think kids would enjoy it. Uh, it's got animals on it. It's got kind of a spatial awareness thing because you're you're using the entire like rotation of the card. It's not just at right angles, which yeah. was the kind of the main conceit. How did you deal conceit. with like you know the like shifted by a you know a micrometer or something? How do you deal with that? Is is it just like if it covers any part of the animal, or if it covers no? Like, I I made majority? it I made it a bit more punishing. So to to count for the card requirements, it has to be completely covered. To count for end game scoring, it has to be completely uncovered, but partially covered lions still count against you. So I, I, I made it hard, partially to make the scores a bit easier to calculate. If you have more lions, it'll gravitate farther down to zero. Because in my test games, my first couple test games, the scores got really high. It was hard to count your final score at the end because I only had one grass card at the end. And so I put in two should make it a hair better there'll be fewer things to count but it pushes the scores farther back down to zero so we'll see if they enjoy it cool the deadline is midnight tonight i've got four hours to do a very quick recording of an elevator pitch and submit it nice we'll see i'm excited to see all the submissions and stuff like i don't know how many submissions are going to be for this contest i think a fair number of people are working on them I think it's really cool for me, at least, to get into this pattern of thinking of, okay, what kind of design can I do with 18 cards? I love limitations in creative things. Yeah. I think limitations are awesome, especially when you're starting out. And this is a really nice limitation on game design that I'm excited to work with. All right. Any other games you've been playing? That's about it. Um... You've just been traveling the world. Yeah, mostly Seattle. <laughs> and by the world, drank, we mean Seattle. I drank so much coffee, or as my friend explained, third wave coffee. Is that tied to third wave feminism? No. Okay. It just shares a name. No. no Dude, does anything like, else have waves other than that? No, not really. And to be to be fair, I have not verified this, so this could literally be my friend and a couple of his friends that call it this. They're trying to coin it. But now it's on. Now we've got it. We're publishing it. Yeah, it's gonna be out for the world to to hear. Yeah, but it's like artisanal, really, really good, professionally prepared coffee that is made to be you know enjoyed straight mostly, mm-hmm. or you yeah, know, I don't know. Second, it's artisanal wave, coffee. Yeah, yeah. Second wave would be like Starbucks. Faux high class. Yeah. Yeah. Really made to be enjoyed with cream. Sure. And first wave is like instant cowboys pot of with a pot. Chock full of nuts. Yeah. Anyway, I drink a lot of excellent coffee in Seattle. Hiked a lot of excellent hikes. Rocks. There are trees out there. Amazing trees. They are good trees. The best trees. That was the biggest shock of hiking in olympic national park not that the hikes were like they're not like categorically different than hikes out here in the east there's just more evergreen trees you just you feel smaller because the trees are huge and you're not even in california have you ever hiked in california no well just the the just the yosemite Yosemite. yeah but but we basically hiked on a cliff right yeah we were in a bare part Man, if we went to the Redwoods, you'd, your head would explode. Yeah. No, no. I, ha- I have to go there. Oh, man. I got to get in shape so we can go and do Whitney and do part of Muir. Do it. I got to do it. Maybe 30th put... birthday. How about that? All right. I'll work toward it. All right. Let's do it. I will never say no to, to Yeah. Hike. I plan on hiking every year. Apparently, Whitney. My dad did Whitney way back in the day, and he... He was always going to do it with me, but he blew out his knee when I was little. I, apparently, it's, it's seven days up and down. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's serious. I mean, yeah. I've, I've backpacked, but... How many days like have that. you done backpacking? I've only ever done two nights. Oh, wow. Like I did five when I was 
11 with yeah. my dad and some friends yeah. in you Yosem- in the valley Yosemite valley i've done a lot of backpacking where we set like aggressive mileage and stuff like that sure but i've done a handful of two two night trips okay yeah. whitney would be fun yeah that's what it's is that 15,000 or is it still in the I, I don't know is that I don't even know where it is is that California yeah it's the tallest mountain in the lower 48 okay yeah it's, okay, on, it's yeah. like right in the middle of the John Muir Trail it's near the Redwoods it's like south of Yosemite that'd be super interesting I've only done right on one the border ish area 14er in in Colorado and and I was fine a lot of people trouble with the elevation I was fine but um you can feel the difference you you walked oh yeah you know. yeah I'm trying to think Mount Whitney is 14505. There you go. 14505. 14505. Yeah, nice. Yeah. All right. We'll have to do that. My it's, bo- it's now spread to right. the world. All right. We're, we'll do that. That's what, two and a half years? Two and a half years? Sure. Well, yeah. we'll say two or three years because we don't want to go in the winter. <laughs> yeah. But I will be 30 in... No, I'll be 30 in one and a half years. Yikes. All right. We can, two we- years from now, we should do Whitney. <laughs> Great. Okay. I'll add it to the the bucket list. So right now the bucket list is Long's Peak in Colorado in Rocky Mountain National Park. Okay. Half Dome in Yosemite. I have no desire to do Half Dome. I did it before. Really? I did part of it when I, on that hike when I was 11 yeah. or 12. I got about halfway up. I don't know. That's I just there's that's like creepy. a creepy. There's like a yeah, that's true. It's really weird. Yeah. Also I know someone who fell off of it and died, so Maybe you'll know another person. <laughs> yeah, try not to fall off of it and die. No, there's something magical about Half Dome. Um, it's really cool to look at. Yeah. Did I tell you when I flew into? I think it was when I I flew into California for your wedding. I believe. Mm-hmm. I just like turned while in the airplane. I had a window seat and looked down, and this massive rock was down there, and I looked at it. Was it Half Dome? And realized it. The whole valley was there. It was Half Dome. Oh. It was like... It, was it Half Dome or was it El Capitan? It was Half Dome. Okay. Because we, we were looking kind of from the north. It was I mean, it was definitely Half Dome. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. That was like one of the more surreal... It's not even that unusual, I'm sure. But just the fact that I like... I've been thinking about Half Dome. I want to... After our trip out there, I got to go back. I got to hike it. Look down. It's like, oh my gosh, there's Half Dome. So... Yeah. That's a, just an amazing valley. But I just want to go hiking now. I got to get in really good shape in the next two years. I'm trying. I'm trying to lose weight. It's not going well. That's all the board games I've been playing lately. I'm very nervous because I was pushing so much stuff back to after this this button shy contest that when I look at my checklist of things to do tomorrow, there's going to be a bunch of items I forgot about that I just set for the 13th. <laughs> It's like, oh, I got to do all that. But I got a couple couple of new games here to review. Carthage is the next one up. It's a deck-building gladiator combat Ooh, that game. That sounds good. Yeah. Hey, that'll be reviewed in a couple yeah. of weeks. I mean, sometimes you you know you shift gears, yeah. and that's a very productive t- place to be. Oh, yeah. And I'm excited. We got that one. I got this one called The Pit, which is like a dungeon crawler. Pioneer Days came from TMG. Apparently, that's like Oregon Trail, the board game. Oh. It's literally going along the Oregon Trail. I bet dysentery's in the game. I mean, it's got to be, right? We have lots of good stuff to play. I got a list. We should play it. It'll be fun. Anyways, I think that's enough chilling and casting. I feel chill. There's a bit of a spike in rage in the middle when talking about Charterstone, but ultimately, yeah. I uh, feel relaxed. And hopefully, you all feel relaxed also. I feel like I should go into like a Bob Ross voice or something. You should change up the ending music. You should play something extremely chill. I don't know. I gotta find something chill. He doesn't do a lot of well, I guess he does some chill stuff, my music some guy. Soothing James Taylor in there or something. <laughs> Anyways, that's our podcast for today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the thoughtfulgamer.com for all kinds of cool reviews and random stuff about board games that I like to talk about write about. Hit me up on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. And if you want to watch us record this live, get all kinds of other bonuses, including coming up, if we can get to $100 on Patreon, 
I'll start doing quarterly board game giveaways. Go to patreon.com slash the thoughtful gamer. We got an awesome community that is growing, it seems, quicker and quicker. We got some new patrons coming in just in this last week, which is exciting. Yeah. It, so, it's been enjoyable to chat with them on the Discord. Yeah, more people in the Discord. That's really fun. So if you want to help us out, uh, again, that's patreon.com slash the thoughtful gamer. We will talk to you all again soon. Goodbye. Adios. Thank you.